0: Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. These are their stories. I am your host, Christopher Healy. On Healthcare Americana and in the meeting rooms of Freedom Health Works, we like to fix problems. I would say we love to fix problems. Whether we're working to help out an individual DPC physician client of ours, or we're setting our sights on real actual healthcare reform at the state or federal level, we love proactive people and ideas. Our previous episodes on Healthcare Americana have been getting a lot of attention for spotlighting the issues surrounding the quote unquote, physician shortage that the United States faces. Now, the majority of this conversation is centered around the limited access that patients have to physicians, but this is misleading in a number of ways. Health insurance networks limit choice, and hospital systems discriminate against non contracted health insurance policyholders. The whole in network versus out of network and finding a physician that you can actually go see within the next three weeks or so. But there's another group medical school graduates that cannot get into residency programs. Now, almost One quarter of medical school graduates cannot further their education and training because of limits on available training slots in residency programs across the US. What are these men and women supposed to do? They wanna help people, but they are physically barred from continuing their training. On this episode of Healthcare Americana, I'm talking to Dr. Farina Khan, chief assistant physician at the Medina Clinic in Missouri, about her experience attempting to find a residency match, as well as her efforts to expand opportunities for these forgotten future doctors.
1: There's no lack of people that want to provide care. It's just our own system is failing us and being able to provide that opportunity. We aren't given the opportunity to get into residency and that same thing is being held against us and and we're being told that we're not qualified enough or we're not good enough or there's a reason we're in in the position that we're in.
0: So Dr. Khan, starting off, you have the job title of assistant physician, but I just wanna be clear to listeners out there and help set the stage for the the episode. We've heard of a, a, a physician's assistant or a PA. What exactly is an assistant physician and how do these differ?
1: Right, so I completely understand. It's a very common misconception. Um, You know, I wish the people that came up with the assistant position title had, you know, thought about it a little bit more um, so that this sort of thing would uh, could have been avoided. But essentially, a physician assistant is someone who has gone through, you know, two years of schooling specifically to pursue that degree. They do have clinical rotations and, you know, theoretical learning that they have to do. They take their own set of certification exams, and then they're able to work in a collaborative arrangement, you know, with a physician. Um, how an assistant physician differs, on the other hand, uh, we are individuals who have graduated from medical school. Um, So already there's, you know, a difference in, you know, the amount of time spent on education and a number of clinical hours that have been accumulated um, during our training period. And um, once you're a graduate of medical school and you're at a point where you haven't gotten into a medical residency training program yet, this assistant physician opportunity, which is offered um, by the state of Missouri, it allows you to pursue this licensure and you can enter into collaborative arrangement with um, a fully licensed physician, uh, with the only caveats being that you have to work within specific primary care specialties, which would be internal medicine, family medicine, OBGYN and pediatrics. And um, the other major point is that your physician has to work in a medically underserved area because one of the major points And one of the major focuses of having an assistant physician is to help mitigate some of the healthcare provider shortages that um, exist within the state of Missouri. You know, we have areas where we don't have fully licensed physicians or NPs or PAs that are able to provide care to patients that really need it. Um, So uh, being an AP, we can sort of help out the fully licensed physicians, you know, with that aspect. Mm -hmm. So we work under a collaborative um, arrangement, you know, with this physician, we have 120 supervised hours that we need to go through, we have CME requirements, you know, just like everybody else. And, um, you know, we're able to prescribe medications, we can, you know, basically do all the things that you would expect an intern uh, resident physician to be able to do that wasn't a residency program. So, we're able to, you know, step in and be primary care providers for these patients.
0: Gotcha. I appreciate the clarification. So, just to summarize that, an assistant physician is somebody who has completed and graduated from medical school, has not taken the step into residency training right now, and still has the title of physician or still be addressed as doctor. So very competent, very educated people. They just kind of missing that next step. And we'll get into some reasons and some causality of that uh, in a second here. But take us through a little bit more about how medical training works. I know we've covered it before on this program, but just to get your take from it, being so fresh out of it, walk us through what it takes to become a physician in secondary education.
1: You know, it's another thing that, you know, the common public really doesn't have an idea of. You know, most people think that, hey, you graduate medical school and you can just grab a doctor job, you know, right off the market, just <laughs> like other professional fields, but unfortunately that's not how it works. Depending on where it is that you're pursuing your medical education, if you're pursuing it here in America, you go through your undergraduate medical education, then you go through four years of medical school during which you're also taking your USMLE certification exams. And then you apply for residency with residency. If you're lucky to get it in the first go, that's still going to be a minimum of three to four years that you have to undergo the training. And then you take a board certification exam afterwards. And, um, If you're crazy enough to think that, hey, I actually like something specific and I want to do more of this for the rest of my life, you have a year or two of fellowship, um, which is basically your specialization training. You probably take an exam after that, and then you can call yourself a full-fledged doctor, finally. Um, How the (laughs) pathway differs (laughs) a little bit. Yeah, air quotes, have air quotes. For someone that decides to pursue their education outside of America, however, it differs because the duration of medical school training is a little bit longer. You know, some programs are five years, some are six years um, in length. Uh, Some of them do incorporate a year of uh, like postgraduate internship training um, as well. And with a lot of these foreign programs, they do not incorporate the U.S. into the curriculum like they do with Caribbean schools or American schools. So they have the added responsibility of getting through those exams on their own time. Um, and then then the process, you know, it streamlines and it joins into the same as an American medical graduate that you try to apply for residency and whenever you get it. You know, you just go through, you know, the three to four years, one or two years, and then you're a doctor. But mm-hmm. being a foreign medical graduate has its uh, unique challenges compared to being an American medical graduate.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you again, going into detail. And because the first time we've really talked about it on this program is the differences between the U.S.-based medical education versus the international medical education. And it mm-hmm. seems a lot of that is um, very good schools abroad but different exam type of culture, different type of exam process coming in, still vying for a very limited number of residency programs. So, one thing uh, that's obviously very important is that, I mean, gosh, you're going through four years of undergraduate university, whether you're pre-med or in a science or whatever it is, doesn't necessarily have to be science-related. Then you got another four years of medical school. Uh, You got your exams built into that. Then you apply for residency, you got your residency program. So, it's a very long process. And obviously, depending on your specialty, that residency can stretch out to maybe eight years of your Mm -hmm. life. And so, you're continuing to pay for your education and then residencies just aren't paid that much. But one thing I really want to focus on again is this matching process. Right. So, when you apply, you finished up medical school, and now you're applying for additional training to, again, you know, use your air quotes, become a full-fledged doctor there. What is that matching program like? Because that's another term that we hear a lot, but there's always a little bit of mystery around that.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, So, how that works, basically, unfortunately, the way the medical field is here in America, it's not like... You see a hospital with a vacancy, like they have a job posting up, you just apply to it, they interview you, and they hire you. They have a centralized process, and how that usually works is that it's a partnership between two entities, really. Uh, One is the AAMC, and the other one is the NRMP. Now, with the AAMC, basically, their job is to sort of manage the residency application. So, how it really works is that you have to purchase a token online. And I believe the token is issued through a third organization, the, the ECFMG. So first you purchase a token and you use that token to establish your account on the AAMC website. And once you establish your account on that website, you're allowed to build your application. And that includes you know, your CV and it talks about your educational experiences, your research, um, you know, other things that you've done as a professional. You add all that information on there and you use that platform to research the programs that you want to apply to for residency. And um, you save programs and then you kind of accumulate the other portions of your application because you need letters of recommendation. You need to put together a personal statement, you know, very similar to applying for, you know, college in America, the same kinds of things. You need those same kinds of things for your residency application as well. You know, at least three to four, you know, good, solid letters of recommendation. Like I said, personal statements. And obviously, you have to have your medical school supply all your documents from there, you know, your diploma and your transcript. And if if you're a foreign medical graduate, they want you to be done with your exams. And once you have taken the USMLE exams, the ECFMG organization issues a certificate. So that's another one of the documents that they require of foreign medical graduates to have on file as part of your application. So you do your program research, you decide to apply for programs, and then they have a very interesting fee structure. It's like the first 10 programs you apply to is like $99. And then like from programs 11 through 20, there's like a different price. And for more than 21, it's a different price. The general advice is that, you know, if you really want to apply broadly enough, apply to at least 150 programs in a given specialty. Wow. So if you are doing that, you know, you're looking to spend anywhere from three to $4,000 just to apply to these programs and just because you apply to a program doesn't guarantee you'll get an interview so you could spend all of that money and not hear back from a single program
0: Jeez. yeah so, <laughs> i don't even think I, I didn't know that one that's that's uh, the first time i've heard that one
1: yeah so i mean if i were to share my you know my personal story i have been through this application cycle about four times now so if i crunch my numbers I've probably touched about 20K in just applying to residencies over the past four years, and my output would be a grand total of seven interviews in four years.
0: Wow, wow. So, why is it so difficult to match?
1: So, there's a bunch of different factors at play. I mean, the biggest one, and you know how we were touching on, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, the physician shortage, um, really, it's not a physician shortage, it's a training shortage. You know, you have... Looking at the last application cycle, if I just give you the basic numbers, you had 40,000 people applying for 34,000 spots. So, if you just break down the numbers, there's 6,000 people who are going to get the short end of the stick and they're not going to match into a program.
0: And that's each year. Each year is an additional 6,000 people.
1: Exactly. And like I said, there might be, you know, plus minus depending on if any new programs pop up or whatever the case may be. But one of the major issues, like I said, is that there are not enough programs. And another reason why there's such, you know, a flare up in that, if you look at numbers, just looking at America, for example... You have like a growth rate, I believe, of like 52% more medical students are being churned out by the American system versus a 1% annual growth of residency programs. So you have this many medical students being produced just by America and this many spots. And now you're also adding international medical graduates. So they're all fighting for this tiny little thing. So there's going to be issues with that. Now, if you're looking more on an individual basis, you know, they, these programs look at a lot of different things. They look at how far, are, are, how far out are you from your year of graduation, because the older of a graduate you are, they feel that, you know, oh, you're out of touch with medicine, and you're not as appealing as someone who just freshly graduated from medical school, even though with some of these older graduates... Some of these graduates, especially the foreign ones, could have been full-fledged doctors in, you know, another country seeing patients for, you know, 10, 20 years sometimes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in that situation, they want to take the fresh, you know, bright-eyed kid that just graduated from medical school because they think they might just be a better option. So that's one thing. Another thing is that they really, a lot of programs, unfortunately, fixate on your performance on the USMLE exams. So, you know sometimes they have like a score minimum. So if your score isn't at least, you know, this, then we don't want to see your application. You're going to filter it out. Like it's not even going to touch our desk.
0: Sure, sure, sure. Standardized testing, right? Always been an issue. There's there's pros and cons to it.
1: Like you could be an amazing doctor in clinical practice, but if you're a, you know, not a stellar test taker and your scores, you know, sort of are in line with that, they're going to look at that and just be like, oh, you know, this person clearly doesn't know what they're doing and they'll just filter you out. Or if you're someone who had to pass an exam on like more, like you took numerous attempts to be able to pass an exam. That's another thing that they look down upon. They prefer someone who passed it in one go. So, you know, there's a bunch of different factors. And then, you know, depending on the program, some programs are very partial to American medical graduates And there's other programs that are very partial to foreign medical graduates um, for whatever reason. But then you have, you know, the people in the middle, such as myself, like I'm a U.S. citizen, born and raised here and everything. But you won't find a program that says, hey, we're looking for people like you and we want you. You (laughs) So it's like you have to find ways to make yourself competitive. You do all sorts of things like. If I'm being honest, I would have probably never pursued this assistant physician opportunity if I didn't think it would make that positive difference on my CV to make myself, you know, an appealing residency applicant.
0: And, and And that's something that I think a lot of people, I mean, gosh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So a lot of people are looking for work, but that's the problem with just looking at a piece of paper and trying to figure out everybody's qualifications, their personality, their fit, just based on a piece of paper. Um, I, you know, I hear that from the business side a lot when when new mothers try to return back to the workforce and they say, well, you've been out of work for a long time. So same kind of concepts where you look at a piece of paper and you're like, this doesn't really tell the whole story. But I, you know, going back to say, you know, annually there's 40,000 residencies, or I'm sorry, 40,000 residency uh, applications um, for 34,000 positions. What's to, what's to, what do you say to people who look at that and say, well, you know, this is a good thing because we want the best and the brightest and that 6,000 that just don't fit. You know, maybe they do need more training. Maybe they do need to study harder. What do you say to them?
1: I can understand why that may be a simple mindset, but at the same time, there are opportunities, for example, like when the math cycle has concluded and there are people that didn't match, they have off-cycle opportunities that come up, and there are people that didn't match in their uh, during the main match who end up matching into these off-cycle positions. So, are you telling me that yesterday this person wasn't good enough, but to, you know tomorrow this this program offered him a spot? What changed overnight? Absolutely nothing. It's the same person, same application. It's just, you know, it's just the the need of the hour, basically. Yeah. You know, like. It, it, uh, it really isn't that cut and dry.
0: Right, right. And and obviously, this is something that uh, touches very close to home for you. And I love the passion that's coming through. And, you know, this is one of those episodes where I wish we had video up online because, you know, I love it when you're yeah. getting animated with your hands and you're, and, you're, and you're really putting a lot of passion into this, like I said. So let's go back to what you said about the doctor shortage, the physician shortage. Right. And, and mm-hmm. again, listeners of the show know that this is one of my favorite topics because, it's total BS, um, you, you mentioned before, it's a total misnomer. Um, mm-hmm. There's really not a physician shortage because if you look at supply and demand, if, every, if, if we all had one physician per person, then being a physician would not be a lucrative career anymore, nor would it be very selective where we have our best and brightest in it. With mm-hmm. that said, the bottleneck isn't a lack of people wanting to care for each other, right? We've Absolutely. mentioned this before, residency training money is tied to the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid. Obviously, we've got to have Big Brother getting their hand in there. No one's a fan of them, but that funding is also set to the same levels as 1997 when the legislation mm-hmm. was, was passed. Obviously, a big problem. Um, then you had those same people that did this made the problem in the first place, but then they complain about shortages of physicians and they put, you know, some potentially dangerous uh, proposals up there from people taking care of us that just don't have the experience and training that a physician normally would. Um, Mm -hmm. So, again, this might sound familiar to a physician who's in a fee-for-service and, you know, busting their tails for hospitals, but it sounds like we're not actually diagnosing the right problem, but we're just fixing some symptoms with it.
1: Exactly. That is exactly correct. And we're not even treating the symptoms properly
0: either. <laughs> <laughs> so each year we got 6,000 successful U.S. medical school graduates that cannot continue their training. And this doesn't count the qualified, competent international students who are coming, or national graduates, I should say, coming mm. over. So Dr. Connell, we're going to take a quick break right there to hear from our sponsors at Happy Dad Vasectomy. And when you come back, we're going to talk solutions because it's always one thing to complain about something and it's a totally different to offer up unique solutions that'll actually have a chance to work. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no needle, no scalpel, no stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi everybody, we're back on Healthcare Americana with Dr. Farina Khan discussing ways to help alleviate that misnomered physician shortage that we mentioned before the break. So again, we have thousands of competent medical school graduates each year, no prospects because of a lack of residency programs that are underfunded by the federal government. We've identified the villain in our story finally, big shocker right there. So how do we get these forgotten future doctors back into the game?
1: For a problem that's this complicated, you need to have a multifaceted solution. So, you know, we do have a couple as far as, you know, the organizations that, you know, I represent, we've definitely thought of quite a few kind of looking at um, sort of, you know, how things have been playing out with COVID-19. You've been hearing about, you know, like I said, the quote-unquote physician shortage. Everyone's crying, there's not enough doctors. And, you you, you know, you saw that they're graduating medical students and nursing students early. They're bringing people back out of retirement after God knows how many years. And, you know, they're having, you know foreign visa requiring doctors come in and help out when there's more than 10,000 people that are in my position that if you gave us a call right now and said, show up at your nearest hospital, we could be there within the hour and start working and start helping. You know, like you said earlier, there's no lack of people that want to provide care. It's just our own system is failing us and being able to provide that opportunity. We aren't given the opportunity to Get into residency, and that same thing is being held against us, and be, and we're being told that we're not qualified enough, or we're not good enough, or there's a reason we're in, we're in the position that we're in. So, you know, one of the things that um that would definitely help is making sure to support legislation that will increase residency training. One of the most common ones out there is the uh, Resident Physician Shortage Reduction Act. And in a nutshell, it's meant to create 3,000 additional residency positions every year for the next five years. So over five years, that's another 15,000 spots. Um, And there are other such pieces of legislation, you know, that the American Society of Physicians is, you know, all for supporting. Um, Examples of those are the Rural Physician Workforce Production Act, the Training the Next Generations of Primary Care Doctors Act, the Supporting Gra- Graduate Medical Education at Community Hospitals Act, and, uh, Advancing Medical Resident Training in Community Hospitals Act, and uh, the Opioid Workforce Act. All of these legislations, uh, what they have in common is that they want to help increase residency training spots, you know, over a given period of time because you ha- the only way you can put these... you know, unemployed people to work is to give them a spot to work in. So, you know, a lot of the time, if you want long, sustainable change, it has to start at the political legislative level. So that's, that's one option.
0: Yeah. And just to cut in there real quick, so a little PSA Mm -hmm. for our listeners, uh, contact your senators, congressmen, congresswomen to get going on the resident physician shortage act. But, you know, again, looking at the government who created this problem in the first place to be Mm -hmm. the solution To me, that sounds like that could just beget other problems or other unintended consequences.
1: I mean, yeah, there is absolutely no guarantees in life that, you know, you think this could be, you know, the magic wand that fixes everything, but it could just very well blow up in your face. There's always that risk with anything that you do, but, you know, unfortunately... With the way that, you know, America is structured, like I was saying earlier, when it comes to long term sustainable change, that power, unfortunately, still does lay with them. So, you know, whether we agree with them, whether we support them and, you know, everything that they necessarily do. We do have to rely on them to be able to do their job and to make these sorts of things happen because these things aren't in our wheelhouse. You know, me by myself, I can't go running to the Capitol and be like, I want to make this change, please make it happen, and then it shall be. It just doesn't work like that.
0: Sure. I wonder if there's an opportunity because, you know, it it, it always seems like a disconnect to me too because licensing is handled at the state level, yet Mm -hmm. to finish your training, you have to go through federal programs. Is there an opportunity for states to step in and help out with that and and go back to residency programs that were, um, I don't know, put together or orchestrated from private practices within the states? Is is the federal government the only option when it comes to that?
1: So, it's not necessarily the only option. You know, we were talking about the assistant physician thing earlier. That is something at the state level. You know, there was a Missouri representative, you know, Dr. Keith Fredericks, you know, he had this idea, and he brought it to fruition, basically. And so, you know, that that whole program is on the state level. It's this Missouri State Medical Board that issues the license, you know, not the U.S. government. So, you know, another that kind of segues into one of the other solutions that was to be talked about, and that is to expand the AP program into other states. That brings power back into the hands of the state. So they can issue these licenses, you know, to, you know, people that are unmatched medical graduates that are, you know, looking to gain, you know, clinical experience, get back into direct primary care and help address this healthcare shortage that we have all over the country. It's not just Missouri that has this problem. The whole country has this problem. And there are so many people that need that, that they need to be able to have that healthcare access that right now they're not having you know, because everybody's just worried about making money, go to the big cities, or in the big bucks. No one cares about the poor little people in the boondocks, you know. But, you know, so if you have the states getting the power to issue these licenses, and you have more assistant positions being produced at the state level, you know, then they have the ability to provide the health care that's needed. And it serves as a bridge to residency. You know, we're not trying to say that APs are here to take over. We're not trying to use the AP route as a replacement for residency, not at all. We're just looking to hit a couple birds with the same stone. That we have patients that need healthcare, we have, you know, potential residency applicants who need to make their applications stronger and, you know, help, you know, regain their clinical and professional confidence. So this is sort of a win-win-win situation for everybody, sure. right? So, you know, that's another, you know, solution to that. Um,
0: Yeah. And and so just to touch upon, because I love that where it's like, my view of the United States is that we have obviously 50 states. And so we have 50 little experiments and their own kind of, constitutional democracy, right? Each one's run a little bit differently. And that's what makes us very, very special. What's right for New York State's not going to be right for Missouri. And what's right for Indiana is not going to be right for Arizona. And so that's mm-hmm. what's really cool about it. And so the fact that Missouri did this type of a program to give very educated, very competent people like yourself the ability to care for people is just fantastic. And I always think it's a lot easier and a lot more um, approachable to get things done on a state level than it is the federal government, because, you know, they they would politicize whether the sky is blue or not, and the grass is green, and that would, they would draw a difference between left and right and, and Democrat and Republican on that one. So just an absolute mess in Washington at this point in time. But, you know, right. going back to your first point, and I just wanted to recap this, um,
1: yeah.
0: even if. CMS and the federal government said, you know what, we're going to free up some dollars for this. What does that look like when you just hand hospital and residency programs a bundle of money? Where is their accountability and what obligations do they have to put that extra money to use in filling residency slots?
1: Yes, that is a wonderful question. Um, As far as that goes, unfortunately, we're not even sure if there is really a sense of accountability um there was actually this uh this journal article that i came across that tried to examine the breakdown of you know the cme funding that goes to these residency programs what do they actually do with it and when you try to follow the money the trail ends up going absolutely cold you can't find a proper account of what these programs do with the money um so that is possible that, you know, you hand a given program, you know, a couple thousand dollars and be like, okay, yes, you know, create more spots or do this or do that. But unfortunately, there are no guarantees that that is what they're going to do with it. They might be like, oh, oh, you know, we have this other need that needs to be met at this hospital. So let's do the money for that instead. You know, the government can tell them this is what you need to do with the money. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what they want to do. You know, like an example of that, Um, at one point when this COVID stuff was, you know, really being impactful, and there was uh, talks about how they should create, you know, like one-year positions that people like me can, you know, use, like they can use us for a year to be able to help um, address, you know, COVID-19 care in different hospitals. But when you actually, and it's like, when you actually talk to program directors about that, you know, because that was a recommendation coming from, you know, uh, I believe it was the ACGME. So, that's a pretty big organization at, you know, the national level. But you talk to program directors and they're just like, uh, no, well, we're not on board with that. So, then you're just like, but this is this is such a good idea. Why wouldn't you go with it? They're still going to do what they want to do, um, unfortunately. A
0: little tone deaf so on their you side, right? Really
1: it's like you can take a horse to the trough to drink water, but you can't actually force it to drink the water. It'll just sit there and stare at you until, it, you know, it's going to do what it's going to do, you know?
0: Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and I know I know we're running short on time here, and I know you're very busy there, so I don't want to take up too much of your, your time today. But, you know, kind of the last question here, um, We've we've you talked about a couple different points, and unfortunately they're both either a federal government or a state government. Um, have you come across anything that, you know the marketplace and more of a grassroots movement can do to help um, medical school graduates like yourself, assistant uh, physicians, or those early into medicine help them find a good spot, help them be a solution uh, to the problem rather than being victims
1: I mean yeah, that's a great question um, i'm I'm not really sure there's an answer to that right now um, because We just think of this problem as being so big, you know, we see it as this Titanic sized ship and we see it about to hit. We actually not even about to, it's hit the iceberg. I was going to say
0: it's, it's taking water on uh, for sure.
1: So, you know, at this point, it's just like, you know, with your suggestion, it's like, what is one little bucket going to do when you have the Titanic already sinking? But, you know, um, we, what we're doing at our end, you know, when I'm talking to people that are in medical school or people that have just graduated and they're trying to evaluate their options, from my end, I try to do them the service of showing them what reality is. Because whether it's America, whether you got training abroad, no one tells you what you're in for. No one tells you that medicine isn't all about saving lives anymore. It's, it's a business and it's this and it's that. You graduate medical school thinking you're going to be a doctor, but two or three years later, you could be flipping burgers at McDonald's because you have student loans to pay off and you still haven't made it into residency. No one goes into medical school thinking that that's what they're going to end up doing. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you're going to do what you have to do, unfortunately, to get by. Um, So it's kind of like making sure that the coming generation of future doctors is aware of what's going on and to make sure they can kind of do you know, not make the same mistakes that we've made and, you know, try to make sure that um, they know what their options are and they can hit the ground running. Like a lot of us, we have learned on the go. I never thought that I would have to become a politician and a lawyer and a business person all just to try to get into residency and, you know, that sort of thing.
0: (laughs) Well, that was very nicely put, and I appreciate the work you're doing. You know, I, I'd encourage anybody active in direct primary care, and whether you work for Freedom HealthWorks or not, get active in local residency programs. See if you can help be a solution and take on and train some of these uh, some of these physicians who are looking for a little bit more expertise. And you know, not just not just checking a box so you can get a medical license or applying to residency programs. But Dr. Connie, there's obviously a lot of people like you who are very passionate who have almost been forgotten about the system that, you know, maybe some of these independent physicians can, can help out and help be a solution uh, to the problem. Dr. Farina Khan, Chief Assistant Physician at the Medina Clinic in Missouri, Interim President of the National Association of Assistant Associate Physicians, also a board member of the American Society for Physicians. Thanks for joining us on Healthcare Americana.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig, thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone, this is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.